Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I'm going to speak very personally for a couple of minutes, um, and then we're going to study some text together. But I'm going to start personally because it'll put everything into context for you as to why this subject is so important to me. Some of you heard my story at Limud about how I became a rabbi, but I I am going to tell it again because it's worth telling. And I want to let you know that this May, I'll be celebrating double high, 36 years in the rabbinate. So, yeah, I was ordained when I was 12, it's true. But, um, and when I think back on how much the world has changed in those 36 years, I'm really overwhelmed and flabbergasted. It was 1968, the day of my bat mitzvah, when I decided to become a rabbi. 1968, there were no female rabbis. I'd never heard of it, thought of it, seen anything. It would make me think it was even possible. In 1968, my family belonged to a classical reform synagogue in New York. In Forest Hills, Queens, if anybody's from there. Yay! Temple Isaiah, Forest Hills. Um, and uh, I was the only girl in my, in my Hebrew school class to choose to have a bat mitzvah instead of a sweet 16. Because every Jewish kid in, in our working class neighborhood was given that choice, sweet 16, bat mitzvah. Sweet 16 was cheaper and easier, for sure. I was the only one to choose bat mitzvah. I ended up being the only girl in my Hebrew school class. The cantor, who was an Eastern European uh, older fellow, became my stand-in grandfather. My Yiddish-speaking grandfather had died a couple of years earlier, and I was very close with him. So there I was in Hebrew school. I was learning. I was the first girl to read Torah in my Reform congregation in 1968. I'd never seen a woman on the bima except to light candles on Friday night. Other than that, women didn't go up to the bima. So here I am the day of my bat mitzvah. I'm reading from the Torah. The sun's coming through the stained glass windows like a golden orb. And I suddenly realize this is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do, and I, and I need to become a rabbi. It's like the Christians would say in Epiphany. That's very powerful. I'll never forget it. So I'm done reading from the Torah, and then it's Devar Torah time, or what we used to call then a speech, <laughs> which the rabbi wrote for us because God forbid we had our own feelings or thoughts about anything. So I pushed aside the speech that the rabbi had written for me, which begins with, I'd like to thank the rabbi. (laughs) I speak extemporaneously, ladies and gentlemen. I have a very strong feeling that what I meant to do in my life is become a rabbi. I remember 1968, never seen, never thought. So my mother starts to cry. My father goes to the edge of his seat as if he's going to protect me from the thunderbolt that's about to come down and kill me. Um, And the rabbi gets back on my microphone, grabs my microphone from the rabbi's podium and says, ladies and gentlemen, 
What she means is that she liked to be the Rebbitzin, because everyone knows that she can't be a rabbi. This is 1968. The only thing I'd ever seen was like women's consciousness raising groups, women's liberation, and I was, I didn't even wear a bra, so let alone burning one. I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> I was 13, remember. So I did the next best thing, which is grab the microphone from the rabbi. <laughs> and I said, no, no, ladies and gentlemen, I intend to be a rabbi. I'll let my husband be the Rebbitzin. <laughs> well, that was 1968 and 19. Uh, that was 1968. In 1983, I was ordained. The cantor was in the front row at my ordination. The rabbi was not. Um, and that was 36 years ago. Now, 36 years ago, 1983, when I was ordained, I went to Toronto, Canada. And there I became the only female rabbi in the whole country at Holy Blossom Temple. I always wanted to call it Holy Blossom Temple and Chinese Restaurant. <laughs> but don't, I couldn't do that in those days. Now I can. Uh, I was the assistant rabbi. That means fifth on the totem pole. That means all the long weekend weddings and funerals that nobody else wants to do on the Monday of Memorial Day. Um, and that was 36 years ago. I went to my first rabbinic meeting. I was the only woman in the room, of course, the only woman around the table. And the rabbi chairing the meeting of the Board of Rabbis of Toronto began the meeting by saying, gentlemen, and Elise. And then later on in the meeting, he said things like, well, when the rabbis and their wives come for the annual picnic, and stuff like that happened to me all the time. I was always the only woman in the room. I was the only woman in the whole country. I used to always get asked to be the only woman on a panel that had nothing to do with anything, which was my forte, which was commentary. As long as it had to do with women in Judaism, they would call me to do it. And I was token for many, many years there in Toronto. So that was 36 years ago. I look back on that. And I think the following parable is really important. You know, if you're pushing an iceberg, you cannot feel the iceberg move. But 36 years later, you can stand back and you'll see how far that iceberg has moved. And if you told me 36 years ago that... Uh, there would be orthodox women called Maharat, or two orthodox women who had taken the title rabbi, or orthodox women teaching Talmud, or an orthodox synagogue in Jerusalem where women read Torah from their side of the Mechitza. I would have told you you were crazy. But I know now that 36 years of pushing the iceberg has made a humongous, ginormous, as my kids would say, difference. And I'm very, very touched and, and grateful to be part of this generation in which we can look at girls who think it's totally normative, who can study with me and say, well, that's my rabbi, and not say, she's a woman, you know, the way I was introduced to every synagogue in 1983. We'd like you to meet Rabbi Elise Goldstein. She's a woman rabbi, you know. <laughs> and I would say, really, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> um, so, so where do I come to this topic then? And then we'll, we're going to really look at some difficult texts together. So during those 36 years, I began to think a lot about the, the ways that women bring to learning Torah, the, way that, the ways that women look at Torah through the lens of having lived a life as a, as a girl and as a woman. Now I'm going to begin this talk with an apology. And I think it's an important apology. 
And that's an apology to anyone who themselves or has a child or a friend or a neighbor or a sibling who doesn't identify in a binary gender way, who might have a child who identifies as non-binary or transgender. Because everything I'm about to say is really based on the feeling that, for me, I have always identified my whole life as cisgender female, which means I've always seen myself as female along with my biology being female. But I do recognize that that's not true for everybody, and I need to start by saying that. Uh, and that's a sensitivity that I, I need for us all to, to have. So as I began to study Torah, I asked the question, is there a woman's way of looking at the Torah or a woman's way of hearing the Torah? I began to discover some amazing things that I want to share with you tonight. And, and you have them on your, on your page. We're going to go through them together. and We're going to use this methodology of gender reading the Torah to look at the difficult story of Dina, which is about as gendered as you can get in the book of Genesis. But to get there, we have to do a little bit of methodology together. So I'm going to do these categories, and I'll stop for questions, and then we'll move on to the next piece. Is that OK? Rather than taking questions all along the way. Thank you. So there are, three, there are two things that we're going to begin with that gets us into a gendered reading of Torah. The first is the rejection of the idea that there is any neutral way of reading the Torah. The minute we reject that notion, we can begin to understand how our life experience reads the Torah for us. Now, I'm going to move away from gender for one minute to give you another example. I'm teaching a class in the book of Leviticus. It's my favorite book of the Bible. I know that sounds really crazy. I call it blood and gore meets the Torah. I love the book of Leviticus. I love anything that has to do with blood and water. And I'm teaching this book in the book of Leviticus. I'm teaching Sara'at, the laws of leprosy, or what we translate as leprosy, which isn't really leprosy, but a skin disease. And I'm teaching, and I'm going about, and I'm giving the commentaries. Here's what Rashi says. Here's what Rambam says. And one of the students in the room raises his hand. He goes, you know, I'm a dermatologist. And I need to explain what I think the Torah means after 30 years of looking at skin. And I suddenly realized that there's a dermatologist's way of reading the Torah. <laughs> and there's a pediatrician way of reading the Torah. And there's a lawyer's way of reading the Torah. And there's a teacher's way of reading the Torah. And there's a carpenter's way of reading the Torah. And when we read the building of the Mishkan, for example, over the next several weeks, all of us who have you know, a, a black thumb, all of us who don't know anything about building, all of us who call the electrician when something goes wrong, or call the plumber, um, we don't read the building of the Mishkan the same way a, contra a contractor reads the building of the Mishkan, the same way a carpenter reads the building of the Mishkan, the same way a plumber reads the building of the Mishkan. So while there's, we've never really been able to uh, out loud say there's a gendered way of reading the Torah, we also haven't been able to say that there's a human life experience way of reading the Torah. So everybody reads the Torah based on their own life experience, which is why I really can't stand it when people say, well, that's just the traditional way of reading the Torah. What does that mean? That is the traditional male, Ashkenazi, Middle Ages, heteronormative way of reading the Torah. But there is no normal way of reading the Torah. Which is why when I wrote my book called The Women's Torah Commentary, I fought with the publisher about the name of the book. Because I actually just wanted it to be called The Torah Commentary. Right? And then I wanted it to be called The Feminist Torah Commentary. And you can't because that's the F word. 
you know. Can't publish a book with the F word in the title. So it had to be called the women's Torah commentary, but I was very adamant that it's not a women's Torah commentary, it's the way women read Torah for everyone to learn from. So the first way of understanding feminist methodology is to reject the notion that there's a neutral Torah commentary, a traditional commentary, a normative Torah commentary. That Rashi was normative, that Rambam was normative, that Ibn Ezra was, none of them. Rashi read the Torah the way a French male vintner, because he, he grew vines, he grew wine, he was a winemaker, a French male vintner, living in the time of the Crusades, reads the Torah. And all of that, all of that, influenced the way Rashi reads the Torah. In fact, there's many different Rashi's, Rashi commentaries during the Torah that you'll read that you'll say to yourself, what is he talking about? Then you say to yourself, oh yeah, of course, he's living through the Crusades. That's why he says that. He's also a man who has two very strong daughters, both of whom he taught how to put on tefillin. So his, he's, you gotta hear his daughters through his voice sometimes. I can hear his daughters behind him saying, Dad, you can't say that, right? So he, that's who he is. Ibn Ezra is a Spaniard. He's a Kabbalist. That's the way he reads the Torah. Rambam is a rationalist. He's a doctor. That's the way he reads the Torah. So step one, to approach the Torah as human readers and say there is no neutral way to read this. There's only biased readings. So if there's only biased readings, we can certainly read it in a biased way through gender. So that's my first, uh, my first theory and my first statement. The second is that it's extremely important for us to uh, read a gendered Torah, gender analysis. And I'm even gonna say a queered analysis that is not only gendered but also sexualized reading of the Torah as a correction, as a correction of what we saw as normative Torah study, normative Torah um, uh, commentary. So you know that correctives sometimes go very far afield to get us back to the middle. So whenever people say to me, oh, you know, isn't it, aren't you going too far? Is it so feminist that men are left out and all that? I go, don't worry about it. I've been left out for 5,000 years. We're, we'll be okay. Men will be okay. They'll catch up in 49,999 years. So I'm not really worried about overcorrecting anything. I'm only worried about undercorrecting. So to me, the importance of a feminist or gendered or uh, uh, queered, which, which means non-heterosexual, um, reading of the Torah is a corrective, not only an inclusion and a broadening, but a real corrective to what we've come to understand as normative Torah study. So I'm going to stop there for one minute. We'll take questions or comments or challenges, and then we're going to look at these categories of feminist analysis and then learn how to layer them onto a text. Comments or questions or, or challenges or queries or anything up till now. Could you please go over how you define non-binary? I think I understand, but I'm not sure. Thank you for asking. So what you're, the question is, how do we define non-binary? So until you know the last five to ten years, most of our society saw everything in two categories, male or female. You are completely male or you are completely female. So women like me, who were appearing to be completely female, but acting 
in a more you know, powerful way would say, oh, they have sort of masculine characteristics, right? Instead of just being normatively female, like people would just look at women like me or men who might have more feminine characteristics and say, well, they're weird. They're just not, they're just not where they're supposed to be. Women are supposed to be softer than that woman. Men are supposed to be stronger than that man. In the last five to 10 years, when we started to understand gender as a, as a large spectrum, we see that there are people who are very, very comfortably female and very, very comfortably male, and then all along the spectrum, other things. So some men are a little bit more female-y, and some women are a little more male-y. And then somewhere in the middle, some people say, you know what, I'm not comfortable being identified as either male or female. I reject those categories altogether. I'm just human. And that's people who say they don't identify as binary, as either male or female. And then there's people who are trans and they cross all sorts of lines, transgender folk. Is that helpful? Thank you, thanks for asking, because I'm throwing around that term and we should all really. I was, what I was afraid you were gonna ask is for me to define feminist, and that I can't do, <laughs> so thank you. So anybody who would thought they were gonna ask me to define feminist, um, I want you to define it for yourself. I can, I'm gonna define what it means academically in a moment, but I'm not gonna define what it means for you emotionally, okay? Anything else, any other questions or comments or challenges? Everybody with me? Great, let's keep going. So this are, there are three categories of an, analyzing a text through feminist and gendered lenses. These three categories are mine, meaning I've, I've, uh, I've uh, written and uh, categorized, I use, these are the words that I use. Um, they're from my book called Revisions, Seeing Torah Through a Feminist Lens, which I'm sorry we don't have any copies of tonight, uh, but you can get it on Amazon. Um, and I like to see feminist analysis through these three categories. Category one, rejectionist. Um, rejectionist category is the hardest of all categories because basically rejectionists say the whole thing is not worth it. It's so patriarchal, it's so misogynist that we can't correct it through the use of feminist analysis, so we're just gonna throw it out. Now the most famous rejectionist in the Christian world was, anybody remembers? Mary Daly. Anybody remember, maybe in university you read Mary Daly and you thought, this woman is talking my language. This woman gets it. She, well, she got it till the Christian world just squeezed her to death. And she finally left and she said, I'm done with it. Religion is hopeless, basically, from a feminist point of view. But Mary Daly was our great, was our great theologian. So in the Jewish world, the great rejectionist's name is Naomi Goldenberg. If you haven't read anything of hers, you might wanna, you might wanna look her up. And now this is dated, so she's gonna use the word women's liberation, so keep that in mind. But she says the following. Although I admire the efforts of the reformers, that's people like me, later I'll call it revisionist, I see them engaged in a hopeless effort. Many feminists recommend ignoring parts of the Torah but still claim the book as a whole is God-given. It is hard to deny that an eventual consequence of criticizing the correctness of any sacred text or tradition is to question why that text or tradition should be considered a divine authority at all. In order to develop a theology of women's liberation, 
feminists have to leave the Bible behind them. It's a very radical point of view. It is not a, she's not alone. There are a lot of theologians who become rejectionists, and they say everything Goldstein is trying to do, writing feminist midrash and all that sweet stuff, it is just worthless. Because in the end, the book itself is seeped through, it rests on, it must have a sexist or misogynist base. In other words, you know, if you build a house on a rotting foundation, the house won't stand. So rejectionists say the foundation is rotted, and the only way to rebuild the structure is to blow it up and either start again or not. Those are rejectionists. We don't study a lot of them because they don't write a lot of theology books, right? Because they've given it up. They've rejected it. Uh, it's important to know their, their theology because it's challenging to people like me who stay within the tradition knowing that some of it is rotting from the bottom from a feminist point of view. So that is, that's, those are the rejectionists. The second category are apologists. You know these well. I'm not going to give any. I'm not going to give any names because I don't want to offend anybody. But apologists are people who write things like, they write things that say things like, there may be some instances where women seem to be aggrieved. Instances in the Torah, sorry, where women seem to be aggrieved or seem to be depicted in a negative light. But these few instances can be easily fixed by traditional commentaries. This is the most important thing underlined, yellow highlight. Apologists usually claim that the problem lies not in the text, but in the reader. Okay? I'm going to give you the quote that you have heard in your life, and that is, if you only understood it better, you'd see that it doesn't mean what you think it means. That's classic apologetica. Rather than addressing the problem itself, that you found in the text. We address you as the problem. Everybody gets that? If you just understood it better, if you knew Rashi, if you knew Rambam, if you could read Hebrew, if you could read Aramaic, if you knew the Talmud, you'd see that really what you think is not right. That's classic apologetica. Now, we've had many, many years of that, and we continue to have lots of books on the shelf, which I would call classic apologetica. If you ask me later privately when we're not on tape, you know, I can give you some examples. <laughs> we, can, we can edit the podcast. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> we can edit the podcast, AJ says. Now, I have been accused of being an apologist, where I, I'm going to tell you I'm a revisionist, because... I have used the commentaries to explain away a problem without saying that the problem doesn't exist. So therefore, I reject the, the calling of me as an apologist, but that's okay. Now, I am a revisionist. Who are the revisionists? And these are the women you've been studying and that you know, okay? Judith Plaskow, um, Judith Hauptman, me, Tirza, Mecha, uh, Tirza, um, Tick, Tick, sorry, Tick for Frey Merkinski, Tirza Mecham, 
You can give me more. I'm sure you can, you can give me more. You've read a lot of their stuff. <clears throat> Who are revisionists? Revisionists are people that are willing to alter a text because we read it differently. Revisionists do not rewrite the Torah. We reread the Torah from a new perspective. We uncover, recover, discover, explore, suggest, speculate. We, oh, this is driving me nuts, I'm sorry. We include the reappropriation of rabbinic use of parable, story, and metaphor. We create explications and interpretations, and we write midrash. Like Nellie Morton, failing to find women's voices or women's experience, we invent it. Like the classical midrashists, we wander far from the original text to get back to it. In this sense, revisionists are the most classical interpreters of text we have in the sense that we are like the classical rabbis. When the rabbis read the Torah and they made up midrashim, stories, parables to explain gaps in the text, they went very far from the original text. Can I give you an example? You know the story of the Akedah, the book of Genesis, when Abraham is told, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and bring him up the mountain and offer him up there as a sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac walk up three days up to the mountain. And you remember from the text, they do not say a word to each other. Father and son, about to kill his son, not a word. What's the first conversation they have at the top of the mountain? Isaac says to Abraham, yeah, exactly. Here's the firewood, here's the fire, where's the ram for the sacrifice? What did they they didn't talk before that moment. So the Midrash makes up the conversation that they had. There's nothing in the text for that Midrash to base it on. It's an empty text, but the Midrash makes up the conversation they had. And the Midrash also brings Sarah into the story. The Midrash has the devil or Satan in the story, like all sorts of things that don't appear in the text. And when I teach Midrash, often my students will say to me, like, where did they get that from? That's like, there's nothing in the text to even suggest that. And I'll say, that's good classic Midrash. So even though Anita Diamond says the red tent is not a midrash, okay, and I have to respect her for that, for most of us it is. For most of us, that's a really good midrash. It goes far from the text to bring us back to the text, okay? So you know all those midrash. You know Abraham smashing the idols. It's a midrash. It doesn't appear in the text. There's nothing in the text to even suggest that ever happened. So that's what we do in feminist theology, or the feminist methodology. We will make a midrashim that help us explain the absence of women, or the presence of women, or what women say or women do. I'll give you my own example. So you know that story I just told you, the Akedah, Isaac and Abraham, walking three days. Where's Sarah in that story? She's dying in the next chapter. In the next chapter she's dying, but where is she at that moment? In the middle of the night. Okay, so here's the midrash, right? Abraham wakes up Sarah and says, darling, you know that kid you gave birth to in your 90s? Just going to take him on a little spazir up the hill. I don't know exactly where we're going. This invisible God that has never spoken to you but has spoken to me several times uh, told me to sort of take him up the mountain and um, going to kill him there. Is that okay? Is that okay, babe? Everything all right with that, you know? To which Sarah says, right, 
thou shalt not over my dead body. And then she literally dies so that he can do it, right? So that's a feminist midrash. We're going to read Sarah in where she's absent. We're going to give her a voice where she doesn't have one. And you're right, it's not in the text and there's nothing to help us. There's nothing to bind that to the text. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The second thing we do in revisionism is we reject women's marginality as a central assumption. This is really important philosophically to understand. We will attempt to either write women in, reinterpret women in, or critique women's absence. But we will note women's absence as being purposeful. So a revisionist will never say, Sarah is absent from the story, and that shows that she's unimportant. That's not revisionism. That's apologetica. We will say, Sarah is absent from the story, and that teaches us something very important, that Sarah cannot be in that story. Because if Sarah is in that story, guess what? The Akedah doesn't happen. Sarah says to Abraham, over my dead body, you are not moving from this tent, and I will tie you down in the bed if I have to. And you're not taking Isaac up the mountain. And that whole chapter of Genesis is now missing, and we don't read it on high holidays anymore because it doesn't exist. That's what would happen if Sarah was in the story. So if a revisionist is going to look at the absence of women and not say, oh, women are absent, and that means they're not important. The opposite. We will say, women are absent. What is that trying to tell us? What does that gender read for us? How does that help us gender read this story? So when I teach the Akedana room, I'll say, I'd like you to gender read this story. That means I want the men in this room to read this story as a man. And tell me from your male lived experience what this story means to you as a father, as a son, as a man. And then I will say to the women in the room, I want you to read this gendered. I want you to tell me how you read this as a woman, what your woman's experience says to you. That's a gendered reading. But we're both going to reject the fact that Sarah's absence is, is uh, unimportant. Her absence is very important. Does everybody get that? Okay. So we reject women's marginality as the assumption that upon which women's invisibility is based. Marianne Tolbert says, it's a conscious effort to retrieve texts overlooked or distorted by patriarchal hermeneutics. Hermeneutics just means interpretations. It focuses its attention on texts involving women characters and explores their functions without the patriarchal presumption of marginality. And I want to say that again. Because when we say women are absent, that means they're unimportant, then we do play into the patriarchal assumptions of women being marginal. When we reject that and say, wait, women are absent for a reason, then we reject that patriarchal assumption of marginality. Is everybody getting me? Because it's an important. OK, great, excellent. Um, OK, we're going to look at feminist methodologies in a moment. Questions, comments? Challenges, critiques. Well, Rabbi, when you flip that around and look at a commentary that focused on women, let's say the story of Ruth, how do you how do you approach that? 
So when I look at books that have like very um, powerful female characters, I also try and read them through a gendered lens, right? Which is how do I as a woman think this story is real or not real? Do I think this story re reflects real women, poor women's lives in the days of that story, in the days of the judges? Ruth is a very good example. It's actually a very easy book to gender read, right? Um, and so I think that that's... I don't want to also make the same assumption about women's, um, women's power. I also don't say, oh, the book of Ruth must prove to us that women are powerful. Again, that's all apologetics. It's not trying to prove anything about gender, right? But it is a, it's a powerful example. Now, when I wrote the Women's Torah Commentary, I, I sent out to about 180 female rabbis, Reform, Conservative, and Reconstructionist, because at that time there were no Orthodox women yet who had taken the title rabbi. Um, and I wrote 180 letters, and I said, Dear colleague, um, don't give me Lilith, give me leprosy, which basically meant, I know you're going to write about Lilith, Easy peasy, easy peasy. The whole book of Genesis, easy peasy. I want some of you to take Leviticus. I want you to gender read the sacrifices. I want you to gender read the priesthood. I want you to gender read Nadav and Avihu dying. I want you to gender read Moses' death. And if you get a chance to read the women's Torah commentary, not the one from the reform movement, but mine, you will be astonished at what, how women gender read the building of the Mishkan, for example, as a birth scenario, going through all the stages of the building of the Mishkan as a birth, stuff like that. You know? So yes, Book of Ruth is easy to gender read. Crossing the Red Sea, not so easy to gender read, but when you do, your mind will be blown. If you ask me later, I'll, I'll gender read the crossing of the Red Sea for you, and you'll say, what? Where'd she get that from? <laughs> so thank you for that. Good question. What else? Okay, so feminist methodologies. Um, and then I'm going to, before we even go to Dean, I'm going to tell you why the title, Women Are From Genesis, Men Are From Leviticus. Anyway, feminist methodologies, A, we're going to look at neutral or traditional analysis. We're going to notice missing or repeated words, inverted details, word plays. We're going to look for echoes of another story. References to an earlier or later event. We're going to look for Christian connotations. Oh boy, when I teach the story of creation to mixed groups, it is extraordinary to hear how Jews have inculcated the Christian understanding of the fall from Eden. And just think it's Jewish too, right? And by the way, it wasn't an apple. You all know that. The Torah doesn't. It was chocolate. <laughs> I could buy that. It was probably a fig, because figs are very sensual. And figs were domesticated in the land of Israel. Yeah. I'm sorry, could I go back to Please the patriarchal do. presumption yeah. phrase? Mm -hmm. In that phrase is the assumption, which is probably accurate, that the text that we reference as the Torah, the entire Tanakh, was written by men. But isn't there one... Um, I'm trying to remember. The book of J. Yes. Yeah. What about? So there's, there's a very good, excellent. So there's, a, there's a, a, a theory that parts of the book of Genesis were written by women and other parts of the other four books were written by women and it's, it's parsed out in the book of J by you know, that which 
um, the different names of God that are used. Uh, that's an old book and an old theory, and it's kind of been lost in, it's been lost in the sauce. Um, most people don't, those people who believe that the Bible is totally a human uh, written document, I want to be careful because people believe different things. Those people who believe that the Torah is totally written by human beings, most of those uh, scholars have rejected the notion that women were involved in any way. Most of them would say JEPD were all men, that the, the priesthood was all male. But when, if we had time and we don't, I would invite you into all of the references in the Torah to goddesses, and uh, because we don't we don't know them, they're in my book in revisions in the third chapter called God and the Goddess. Um, there's a lot of references in the Torah to sacred trees and sacred groves, and they use the word Ashtarot, which means Ashtoret, which means Aser. What's the name in in um, Astart? You know the goddess Astart. Um, and so a lot of people think, oh, maybe those parts, the parts about the goddess, were written by women. But of course, the Torah tells us to destroy all that, <laughs> get rid of those goddesses. So it would be hard to believe that women would be writing that. Great question, thanks. Um, OK, so we're going to reject the idea of neutrality. We talked about that. Rachel Adler, Rachel Adler, one of the great feminist theologians, says, one crucial contribution will be the methodologies feminists have developed for understanding using narrative. Feminist narratives draw upon fantasies and desires, prophecies and prayers to imagine possible worlds in which both women and men could flourish. <coughs> As a tool of critique, narrative can expose within abstract theories, assumptions about the nature and experience of being human, what people know, how they love, what they want, and what they fear. In other words, Rachel is saying what we know from those of you who may, may have studied literature, that um, literature tells us more about ourselves than about the author. Right? We can never understand what's called authorial intent. Has anybody ever written a book here? So if there's any authors in the room, you know what authorial intent means. Um, has anybody ever acted in a show? Okay, wow, interesting group. We can't know what the author meant of a book. So I, so I do book signings all the time for my book, and people, books, and people will come up to me and say, oh, I love when you said in your book that blue is pink, whatever. And I'll say, I never said that. No, no, you did, you did, you definitely said that, right? Or does anybody else in the room ever give a Devar Torah and someone will come up to you and go, I love you know, that you said that we shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, and you go like, I didn't say that. But yes, you did, because whatever, you, whatever person hears is what you said. That's called authorial intent. You cannot ever know what the author intended because it, what you hear is what the author intended. So that's basically, we don't know what the author intended, and therefore, we are free to really interpret it as we want. We're going to use a critique of the text from within its social context, as that context applies to women, both in the biblical period and now. We're going to use a critique of the traditional ways of unpacking the text. That means that we're going to unpack the unpackers when we look at the story of Dina. We're going to unpack how they unpacked it. An analysis of the assumptions we bring to the text, based on the history of our own personal biases that we've inherited. We're going to look for messages of change within a traditional reverence for an unchanging text. And we're going to look for a correction of neutral commentaries. That's what we're going to do as we look in a gender reading. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to give you one other piece that you have in front of you. Um, I'm sure most of you read it. It's really old. But how many of you remember Carol Gilligan? 
and her book, In a Different Voice. Okay. If you didn't read it, it's a million years old. Please read it. Please read it. Make that, make, make that your homework for tonight. Carol Gilligan, In a Different Voice. You can still get it from the library. I doubt you can even buy it anymore. Carol Gilligan, In a Different Voice. It's 40 years old. That's 40 years old. And again, a binary, a non-binary reading would reject what Carol Gilligan came up with. But Carol Gilligan was a Harvard psychologist, and she studied the moral development of children. And she noticed that every study hitherto had only studied boys. And she was interested in the moral development of girls. And so she did experiments mostly on the schoolyards about how boys and girls approach the same problem, how they solve exactly the same problem. And this book discusses that study. In that study, she discovered something that we sort of knew intuitively anyway. And that is that if there's a rule, boys will sacrifice everything to save the rule, and girls will sacrifice nothing to save the rule. That is, we'll, do, we'll use the playground as an example. If boys are on a team, and one of the boys on the team breaks the rule of the team, the team will turn to the boy and say, you broke the rule, that's the rule, you're off the team. So the rule is more important than that boy's feelings at that moment. The same exact scenario in a group of girls, the girls will take the rule breaker aside, and they will say to her, you know, you broke the rule, but it's a stupid rule anyway. Let's just play a different game, okay? They will not sacrifice the game or the relationships of the girls on that team for that rule. The boys will sacrifice the boy who broke the rule or the game altogether because the rule must win. So Gilligan posits that as boys grow up, they learn, whether it's learned or foisted upon them by patriarchal society, they learn that rules win, and girls learn that relationships win. Now, I have taken Carol Gilligan's theory and layered it upon Torah study, layered it upon the five books of Moses, and I think I'm right. So here goes, ready? The book of Genesis always relationships win, and the rules lose. Think about it. Every matriarch breaks the most important rule of the book of Genesis, which is called primogenitor, which means the firstborn inherits double. Every single matriarch, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, all break that rule. Does any of them get punished? Not one. Not one. The book of Genesis is a book of relationships. The rules lose, the relationships win. The book of Exodus is a book of relationships. The rules lose, the relationships win. The book of Leviticus is where it all changes. The rules win and the relationships lose. What happens in the book of Leviticus to prove my point? Nadav and Avi who break one rule and they didn't even know they were breaking it. And by the way, no one told them the rule. And by the way, no one said to them, you're breaking a rule. 
They break a rule that no one seems to have known. We don't even know what rule they broke. Zap. They're dead. And what else proves it in the book of Leviticus? All the sacrificial system. You break a rule, God doesn't love you anymore. You need to bring a dead animal to placate an angry God because you broke a rule because God cares more about the rule than about you. It's a very profound way of reading the Torah. What happens in Numbers and Deuteronomy pretty well follows Leviticus. The most um, extreme case of this Gilligan reading of the Torah is Moses. Well, he died. He doesn't enter the problem. He doesn't enter the problem. Why doesn't he enter? The but hadn't he struck it once before and it was okay? Yeah. Bring water. Yeah. He struck it once before and it was okay. And then he broke the same rule he had already broken and it was okay. And zam, bam. And he pleads with God. And God says, uh-uh, you broke the rule. You're my favorite, but you broke the rule. You're not going in. That's the most extreme example of where rules win over relationships. So layering Gilligan on the Torah, we can really read a gendered reading of Torah. It changes how you read the book of Leviticus. It really does in the whole priesthood. So that, that is why I call this women are from Genesis, men are from Leviticus. But it is also a, a way of looking through the Torah with gendered lenses. Now, I'm ready to dive into some difficult text, but let's take a minute. Anybody want to say anything, ask anything, challenge, question, critique? I'm happy to, to dialogue. Abraham's plea for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would be a relationship story, right? We, we could look at it that way, but I'll tell you, I'm going to repeat the question. Abraham's pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, isn't that a relationship way of reading the text. Yes and no. First of all, he doesn't plead for his own son, right? God says, take your son up the hill and kill him. And he goes, he doesn't go, wait a minute. Um, if I could find 10 nice teenagers, could we do, you know, can we, can we do that instead, right? So that's number one. Number two, his pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah is actually his pleading for the rules, not for the relationship. Because he, what's his famous line to God? in this whole pleading with God. The most famous line. Wouldn't a just God do justice? So should not the judge of all the world do justice? To me, that's a rule. You, you made the rules, God. You said justice, and you're not following your own rules. Well, he's also willing to sacrifice his daughters. Again, another way of reading. A gen very good example of a gendered way of reading that story. So a Gilligan way of reading the story would be, no, he's not arguing for those people. He's arguing because God's breaking God's own rule. And a, another gendered way of reading it would be, hey, where were you the next chapter? Right? When you say to the visitors, right, hey, do me a favor. Don't touch those men. Take my daughters instead. In fact, they're virgins. Why wouldn't you want them? Right? A gendered reading would say, is that about relationships? Good question. What else? What else is coming up for you? Anything else coming up for people? 
Well, that's interesting because if you think about Lot's wife turning to, who turns around. It's interesting to think about Lot's wife who turns in, turns around to see the town she's leaving behind the breaks children. the rule. Right, and the children. And the children. And what does she turn into? Salt. Why salt? Tears. Tears. She is frozen in time as a warning, this gender reading, as a warning to those who would choose relationships over the rules. The rule is, don't turn back. The relationship is, those are my kids, my neighbors, my family. You will cry yourself to death if you do that. Good, good example. Yes, please. It occurs to me as you're talking about Gilligan and this, the comparison of men and women that um, men can be, well, I say this diplomatically, um, that men are more tied to rules because it's a way to um, hold power, hold control, whereas women are more flexible. They understand capriciousness, whereas men are going, no, no, no room for caprice. Can't, can't do that. Can't hold these rules. They're inflexible but that women use the only power that they have, which is flexibility. Or relationships. So I'm going to just repeat that. We could easily say that men were tied to rules because it's a good power retention tool, right? The more I make the rules, the more I have to keep them. And if I break my own rule, it leaves too much room for someone else to get in there. And I think from a patriarchal point of view, you're very correct to say that holding on to rules is holding on to power. He who makes the rules rules the world, right? It's also easy to see from a gendered point of view that women could easily break the rules. First of all, we weren't really bound to all those rules anyway. Second of all, we were liminal or secondary characters. And even in Shakespeare, even in great literature, the people who break the rules are usually liminal characters, the people who dress, cross-dress, and the people who mess things up and the jesters and people like that are liminal characters, right? So it's easy to see why women would be rule breakers. And the third reason is, I think from a gendered point of view, women weren't that interested or didn't hold by those rules because they weren't made for us, by us, or with us, right? So we're like, those are their rules. They can go fight it out on the, on the battlefield. Let them kill each other over those rules. We will go back to the tent and worry about our relationships. That's not true anymore, right? And that's why Gilligan is old and, and has been critiqued, obviously, because it's too binary. But it still is a very interesting way of reading the Torah, of layering that onto the Torah. I want to put everybody into the story. Please forgive me if you know it by heart and all of that. But let's just make sure everybody is on exactly the same page of the story before we unpack it. Okay. So very, very first thing I need to say is the story of Dina is not the rape of Dina. Because the Hebrew word in that story is very challenging and problematic. We're going to look at the word for rape in that story. And it helps us reframe the whole story, number one. Numbers, that's why I call it the debasement or humiliation of Dina, as opposed to the rape of Dina. Number two, please, I beg of you, put Anita Diamond's book out of your mind for the next 15 minutes, okay? Forget that she loved him and she wanted to marry him and it wasn't a rape. I love it, love it, love it, but put it out for now, okay? We're just not going to use that. Okay, here's the story. 
Now Dina, we're in the book of Genesis. Now Dina, the daughter whom Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, chief of the country, saw her and took her and lay with her by force. Being strongly drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob, and in love with the maiden, he spoke to the maiden tenderly. So Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as a wife. I'm going to read it in Hebrew for those of you who know any Hebrew at all. I want you to listen very carefully to the words in Hebrew. Even if you just know a few, a little bit of Hebrew, it's important to listen. Vatetse dina bat leah asher yaldali yaakov lirot bivnot haaretz. Vayar ota shchem ben chamor hachivi nisi haaretz. Vayikach ota vayishkav ota vayeeneha vatidbak nafsho bedina bat yaakov vayehov et hanaara. Vayidaber al lev hanaara. Vayomer shchem el hamor aviv lemor. Kachli et hayaldahazot leisha. Whether you know Hebrew or English, you should have noticed at least 25 things in this before we even unpack it. Call out for me. What do you notice? Just raise your hand. What? Everything you notice. Just anything and everything you notice. Tell me. Don't worry about what the commentaries say. She's bat Leia, but she's Yalda Yaakov. Good. She's bat Leia, daughter of Leia, whom Leia bore to Jacob. Put that, put, underline that, keep that in your mind. What else do you notice? Anything at all, anything. She's Lira to see. She went out to see. She went out to Who see. Who are the daughters of the land? Okay, two. Who are the daughters of the land? What does it mean to see them? Okay, good. What else do you notice? Just things that you question, things that are interesting. Well, there's a series of verbs. He saw her, he took her, he lay with her. Good. Three staccato verbs in a row. Okay, and you have to listen to it in Hebrew because it's really important as well. Vayikach ota, vayishkav ota, vayeeneha. Anyone who knows Hebrew, what do you notice? Took, good. What else? Took, lay. Good, good. Now, but in, in Hebrew, anybody notice anything? If you know Hebrew? Yes. Nice, good. Beautiful. I want you to notice, vayikach ota. He took the indirect object, et her, okay? He took her, vayishkav Ota, and he, he laid, no. I want you to notice that. I'm glad you said that. You said he laid with her. Look at the Hebrew. He laid her. Yeah. There's no with yeah. in the Hebrew. There's no with. There's only et. He laid at her. <clears throat> he took at her, and he laid at her. It's a direct object. It's a direct, direct object. object. The, the with and I, I, I really can't stand when it says with in the English. Because that's where by force comes in. He laid her. You know in English that that has a sense of debasement. To lay somebody, right? It's not the same as to lay with. He took her. He laid her. 
Vayeneha. The et is missing there, you notice very nicely. So she already is not only the indirect object, but she's further objectified in that the indirect object doesn't even appear anymore. He took et, her. He laid et, her. Et means an indirect object is about to come. He took et, her. He laid et, her. And he something, we don't know what the word means yet, her. She's already a, th a further object at that point. What else do you notice? Talk about the whole uh, sequence of events here. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it says that being strongly drawn, I'm only using maybe. Yes, please. Go ahead. Sure. Being strongly drawn to Dina, um, in love with the maiden, it sounds as if she's provocative. Okay. Interesting. Okay, you feel like, you said that you feel like she's being provocative, being strongly drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob, and in love with the maiden. She has some part of that. Good. What else do you notice? Why is she the daughter of Jacob? Why? All of a sudden, Leah's gone. Very nice. Good for noticing. Okay? We start by saying she has a relationship with her mother, and we end with only her father. Good. What else do you notice? See all this stuff you're noticing. Good. Yeah. Yep. Which now by cheating and looking at the second story, nice. just the opposite. Good, very nice. We're going to go to the second story. Look at the Hebrew, right? No, her heart. He spoke to her heart. But he's just taken her, laid her, and done something else we don't know what yet. Now we have to find out what that word ya'anuha means, but we'll do that in a minute. Anything else you notice? He wants to marry her. Go ahead. Can you understand that he's just met her? He's never met her before? She goes out to see the women of the land, and he sees her, and then the whatever happens, happens. We don't know exactly what happens. He's in love with her the minute he meets her. It's love at first sight. We don't really know. We don't really know. Because there's no time frame. There's no time frame. The time frame is missing. She goes out to see the daughters of the land. We have no idea what that means. He sees her. He takes her. He lays her. He does something else. We don't know what that means. And then he falls in love with her. We have a vav conversive, so it could be the past. Right. We have a vav hipuch, right? It could be the past tense. And he wants to marry her. Okay. Now we have to figure out what happened in this story. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. One very young thing, there's a second last word, uh, even though he's speaking tenderly, yep. when he speaks to her, his father, he doesn't refer nice. to her as Dina. Oh, beautiful. Else. Very good reading. Very good close reading. Very good close. In my old days at Colel, in my adult ed center, I would say, you get the Rashi Prize. Very good close reading, okay? So at the, he speaks to her heart, we almost like him at that point, right? He speaks to her heart. It's kind of nice. Um, and then he goes to his father, and he says, and, and if you know Hebrew, you feel the abruptness of his words. Kachli et hazot leisha. In command form, go get me that girl for my wife. So he's just spoken very tenderly to her but to his own father. Now, you also, in a close reading, would notice the word kahli is the first word of what he does to her. He took her, vayikach. And then he says to his father, I took her already. Now you go take her. 
okay? So from a gendered reading, this is a good close reading, we're asking these questions, where, what does this text say about women? What does this text say about men? What does this text say about Dina? What does this text say about Jacob? What does this text say about Leah, right? And we want to know where are the women and the men in this text. Now, we're going to look at a similar story that happens in the book of Samuel, the story of Tamar and Amnon. And there, we're now trying to figure out what is the word vaya'anuha, and he debased her, lay with her by force, raped her. We don't know what that word means. In this other text, we see the same word, Verse 12, but she said to him, Tamar says to her brother Amnon, don't brother, don't anami, whatever that word means, don't anami, don't do this horrible thing to me. Such things are not done in Israel. Don't do such a vile thing. Where will I carry my shame? And you, you will be like any of the scoundrels in Israel. But he would not listen to her. This is when his, her brother rapes her. I'm known, her half-brother. So here we have the word ana to mean something horrible, vile, terrible, but we still don't know what it is. It has a sexual context, right? Now, look in Genesis. This is the same word for what Sarah did to Hagar. And we all of a sudden have unsexualized the word, which is, makes it really interesting. Okay? If, Shem Anad Dina and Amnon Anad Tamar. It's pretty disgusting, but it, we thought it was sexual. But now this is what Sarah does to Hagar in Genesis 16. And Sarah, Sarai despised her, and Hagar ran away from her. And what is the word for despised? Vat Aneha, same word. Sarah did something to Hagar that was vile and disgusting, but we have to guess it's not sexualized. However, a gendered reading might say what? If it's sexualized with Dina, and if it's sexualized with Tamar, then maybe what Sarai did to Hagar is really problematic because it has sexual abuse in it. We don't know. Again, Rashi's not going to say this, I'm not getting this from Rashi, okay? I'm reading it through gendered eyes. In Deuteronomy, this is what the Egyptians did to us. Vayiru otanu hamitzrim, vayanunu, they anad us. Whatever anad means. Okay? It is, it is translated as oppressed us, but now we don't know. Because it's what Amnon did to Tamar, it's what Shem did to Dina, it's what Sarah did to Hagar, and it's what the Egyptians did to us. It gets really interesting, right? Now we find it in the laws of rape, in the book of Deuteronomy. These are the laws of what happens to the rapist, okay? And if the woman cries out, there's one punishment, and if the woman doesn't cry out, there's another and who gets punished? The woman, because she was in the city and no one heard her cry out in protest. The woman is assumed innocent if she's raped in the city. 
because it's assumed that she, I'm sorry, she's assumed guilty, sorry, because in the city, it's assumed lots of people would have heard her if she had cried out. And the man, on account of the fact that he, Anad, did something to the wife of his neighbor. Now, we know in the context of the book of Deuteronomy, this is talking about rape. So here's where it's sexualized. So we really don't know what happens in the book of Dina, but looking at that word in other contexts gives us pause to think about what might have happened. And now we're going to look at our traditional commentaries and try and unpack them. So you asked me, you, you noticed that she's called the daughter of Leah, and also whom Leah brought to Jacob. Well, look what Rashi says. Scripture calls, everybody sees where I am? Yeah? Scripture calls her why not the daughter of Jacob. Because she went out, she is called Leah's daughter, since she too was fond of going out. Now you have to understand what this means. Yatsanit in Hebrew is a gadabout. It's a loose woman. It's a woman of the night. Okay. To latzet, to go out. Remember the beginning of our story? What does Dina do? She went out to see the daughters of the land. How do we know her mother liked to go out? Well, do you remember that Leah and Rachel fought over the um, affections of Jacob? And remember one night Leah goes out to, and she won him, she bought him with the mandrakes, dudaim in Hebrew. Dudaim, does anybody hear anything in there? Not Dina. Good, good try though. Dodili, dudaim, aphrodisiac plants. Okay, so Leah bought him for the price of aphrodisiac plants or mandrakes, and when she goes to tell him, "Hey Jacob, guess who you're sleeping with tonight?" The text says she went out to the field to find Jacob. And now look at the bottom line of Rashi. With an allusion to her, they formulated the proverb, like mother, like daughter. Again, a gendered reading notices that. A gendered reading would ask the following question. Rashi, what's going on in your life with your wife and your daughters that makes you say that? Seriously. Now, Look what he thinks the word ana means here. It's so fabulous. Rashi says, what does it mean, vayishkav ota? Well, vayishkav ita, I'm sorry, vayishkav ota kidarcha. He had sex with her in a normal way. And then afterwards, vayaaneha shelo kidarcha. What does that word ana mean? He had sex with her in an unnatural or unusual way. So it's not necessarily rape, but it's some sexual debasement or sexual humiliation. And now Rashi says, what does it mean? He, he spoke lovingly to the girl. Literally, he spoke to the heart of the maiden. Words that would appeal to her heart. See how much money your father has lavished for a small plot of field? I will marry you, and you will then possess the city and all of its fields. Now, for gendered reading, don't get upset. A gendered reading would notice. Who is Shem? I bolded it for you in the first text. 
What is the text very careful to tell us about Shem? Who is he? He's a big macher. Not a Jewish one. He's their big macher. Who's Dina, the daughter of? A big macher. In a way, Rashi is equalizing Dina and Shechem at this moment, saying what Shechem did was say to Dina, listen, what I just did to you maybe wasn't fair, but you would never get a guy of your station Ooh, if you stayed. Tell them it's Parshat Titzaveh, because they probably want to know what's the Parsha this week. <laughs> you would never get a guy high enough in your tribe for you to deserve. If you marry me, you'll be marrying parallel in power and in money. It's a very interesting way to read the Rashi. Now Rashi perhaps is putting in Shechem's mouth a little twist to, um, to Dina, to say to Dina, listen girl, if you stay with those Hebrews, they're gonna marry you off to some Nudnik, okay? If you stay with me, because you're the only girl, remember? There's 12 brothers and they're way more important than you are. They're going to marry you after some Nudnik shepherd. If you stay with me, at least it'll be a parallel move. I find that Rashi really, really interesting and provocative. And it opens up another whole possibility to Dina's humanity in this story and to Shechem's humanity. Okay, Rebbeinu Bachia, who's a mid, uh, late medieval um, thinker, um, reads the following. What does it mean to say, Lir Oath, that she went out to see the daughters of the land? It means to see and be seen. He understands she's the only girl in a family of 12 boys. <laughs> her mother, Leah, is she really that interested in her? What's Leah's real priority in life? Who is Leah's real priority in life? Her sons and Jacob, right? Why is Leah's first priority Jacob? Because she's not the loved wife. She's the not favored wife. And she's so jealous of Rachel all the time. Rachel gets Jacob anytime she wants. Here's the daughter of the unloved wife, sister to 12 boys, sitting alone in the tent. Of course she's going to say, I want to go see what the girls are doing. I'm going to see and be seen. I am invisible in this world, in this tent. I have got to have a life. So again, a gendered reading understands why Dina went out to see the daughters of the land and be seen. And um, you know, we're going to skip the Malbim. I want to end with some modern stuff. Let's look at two really interesting um, essays on Dina. One is from Dr. Shauna Delansky. She's a Canadian um, theologian, a Canadian biblical scholar. And I really like what she, what she writes, so let's read that. She's trying to also figure out what the word ana, ina, means to humiliate, debase, or rape. So what does ina mean, and what exactly happened to Dina as far as the narrator is concerned? Deuteronomy 22 and Genesis 16 suggest that ina denotes a downward movement in a social sense. 
It means to debase or humiliate or to lower a person's status. This debasement is unrelated to the woman's consent and therefore not equivalent to our concept of rape. To be fair, although the text never says that Dina was forced into having sex, it never says that she engaged in it willingly either. Rather, the narrator is unconcerned with the question of Dina's consent. Dina herself does not speak a single word in the story. Why Dina's mindset was not of interest to the author is the question that a feminist social scientist and historian ought to begin investigating about the society of the Bible rather than read into it what she might project from her own. So the uh, gendered reading would ask, why does Dina not say a word in this story? And why is the text unconcerned with whether Dina consented or not? Because the text does not say, and he forced her, and she cried out, and she screamed, and she went to her father and complained. Nothing. She's completely a passive, indirect object in this story. So we have to, from a gendered point of view, ask, what is going on in that tent world of Dina's that we don't understand that affects this story so deeply? So that's the first sort of modern way of looking at it from a, from a conference, from a paper she gave in 2014. And the second is from the Jewish Women's Archive. It's a really lovely, if you don't know the Jewish Women's Archive, I would like to introduce you to it. It's just www.jewishwomensarchive. It has, just Google the name of the woman character you want to learn something about, and it has wonderful, wonderful study stuff on there. The story invites two opposing interpretations. The traditional understanding is that Dina has been raped by Shem. Her brothers, Simeon and Levi, retaliate by violently slaying and plundering Shem, Hamor, and the Shemite community. Remember what happens after the rape scene? What happens next? They catch them circumcised and then he kills them. The brothers, Shimon and Levi, say to Hamor and Shem, oh, you want to marry Dina? No probs, you just have to be circumcised, you and all the men of your town. Now, I don't know if any of you men have ever been through adult circumcision, but it's no walk in the park, okay? You need lots of days to recover. Uh, it's an adult surgery, and in the days of the Bible, I can promise you it wasn't done with a lot of um, anesthesia. So these guys get circumcised on the hope that they can now marry into the women of Israel. And while they're recuperating, they are all slain by Shimon and Levi and the rest of the brothers. I just want to put everybody on that page. But the retaliation puts Jacob's group in jeopardy by making subsequent social intercourse and peaceful coexistence impossible. Jacob thus reprimands his sons for their behavior. But concerning the question of whether Dina has been raped, the final clue comes in the last sentence of the story. When Jacob says to Shimon and Levi, what the heck did you do? You circumcised them on a ruse. You lied to them and then you slaughtered them. We have to move. We can never stay in this town again. 
What is Shimon and Levi's answer? Right here. Should our sister be treated like a whore? Kizona in Hebrew. Okay, the final clue comes in the last sentence of the story. Shimon and Levi say, should our sister be treated like a whore? Prostitutes engage in sexual intercourse for financial gain, and their sexual actions involve mutual consent. Rape, therefore, does not characterize either prostitution or what has happened to Dina. Furthermore, one of the purposes of sexual intercourse in the ancient world was to create permanent bonding and obligation. In fact, that may be why Shem did it in the first place. His ladies, I'm sorry, his men wanted to marry our women. And maybe the best way of doing that is, didn't kings and queens do that all through human history? Didn't they marry each other? Marry each other. Didn't they sleep together to forge alliances, right? One of the purposes of sexual intercourse in the ancient world was to create permanent bonding and obligation. But in prostitution, there is no bonding or obligation. By saying that Dina has become like a prostitute, Shimon and Levi might be suggesting that from their perspective, Dina and Shem's intercourse could never lead to bonding and obligation. Meaning, the retaliation of Shimon and Levi was not about Dina's rape. What was it really about? The rules. The rules? What else was it really about? Preserving the integrity of the, of the tribe. Preserving the integrity of the tribe. It's an anti-intermarriage massacre. It's an anti-interrelating massacre. It's a don't you dare, Chivites, think that you're coming in to be part of our society. And the symbol of circumcision, now we'll, go, we'll finish with our gendered reading, the symbol of it being a circumcision is not taken up by any of the traditional commentators. But a feminist reading notices that the punishment for this sexual debasing of Dina is a sexual castration, if you'll let me use that word, of the Shechem tribe, of circumcising adult men and then killing them in the midst of recovery from circumcision is about as castrating as you can get. So the sexual debasement of Dina is matched, if you will, by the sexual debasement of the whole tribe of Shechem through the act of circumcision. A gendered reading is going to notice that parallel between sexual debasement of Dina and the circumcision of the men who did it as a punishment. So that is a little bit of an introduction to gendered reading of the Torah. We could do that with just about every line of the Torah if you wanted to. Um, so talk to me. We have five minutes left. Uh, what, what does this bring up for you? What questions, comments, challenges? I'm here. Talk to me. Yes, please. Does anybody really come up with the, quote, definitive meaning of that verb? No, no one has ever come up with a definitive meaning of that verb. <coughs> because it looks like, if I remember correctly, from the Haggadah, halach ma'anya. Right, poverty. Right. Right. To afflict your soul. Yes. So the question is, has anybody come up with a definitive answer to that root, ana? What does it really mean? 
And we've seen in several places in the Torah where it can mean all different things. What Hagar, what Sarah does to Hagar, it means very, very wide range of possibilities. And then we see it again in the Haggadah, right? Halach Ma'anya. And we see it again in the laws of Yom Kippur. Va'anitem et nafshotechem. You should do this anathing to your soul. There it can't mean anything sexual. Although you know one of the laws of Yom Kippur is that you're not allowed to have sexual intercourse. So it could be that we afflict our souls by not being able to have sexual intercourse for those 24 hours. It could have a sexual feeling there. But no, there's no definitive. And that's the beauty of Torah study. There's never a definitive answer as to what something means. Because if there was, you wouldn't be able to have your beautiful insight into it, right? Go ahead, please. It almost seems to be parallel with the English use of the F word. Right, because you know, you say, you know, who the F are you? Right. You say you were F over. Yeah. Good. I mean, it's it's the act, but the act that is described in a way that's pejorative. Yeah. You know, it's almost. Yeah, so your comment is that it's very similar to the way we use or misuse the F word today, and I want to strengthen your argument by saying that this story, again, from a gendered reading, proves to us over and over and over again how in a patriarchy, sex is power. It has nothing to do with love. It has nothing to do with intimacy. It has, it has everything to do with the F word, as you say. It has everything to do with power. Go ahead. And where, where there's intercourse that's more appropriate effect. Is there, are there different words Lovely. in intercourse that do not have that pejorative? Lovely question. So the question is, when intercourse is described in the Torah in an intimate or loving or procreative way is a different word used? And the answer is absolutely yes. From the book of Genesis, when Adam knew Chava. So when you have sexual intercourse within um, a prescribed or appropriate method, it's called lada'at, to know your partner. And in fact, in the book of Leviticus, where all of the sexual inappropriate acts are listed, um, it says a man shall not know his sister or know, you know, so that word is used there. And the other word that's used in the Torah is to uncover your nakedness. In other words, to be vulnerable, to be naked in front of someone. Neither one of those words are used here. That's a very good insight, an important insight. Thank you. Yeah, in the back. In the appropriate time for sex when the couples know each other, Mm -hmm. all I've heard is the man knows the woman. Right. Does the woman ever know... Excellent, great question. So does the woman ever know the man? Because the man always knows. And by the way, the man always takes the woman. To get married in biblical Hebrew is vayikach, is lakachat, is vayikach isha, right? Um, uh, Even in modern Hebrew, the word for husband is baal, which means master. And isn't it the name of that god that we don't like very much? You shall not have Baalim over it, right? Oh, the Israelites are not allowed to worship the Baal. So in modern Hebrew today in Israel, uh, we'll introduce our husbands with the word ish, zet ishi, this is my man. The word in Hebrew for, for wife is just isha, woman. There isn't even a word for wife because in a polygamous society, 
Any woman can be your wife, right? There's no such thing as one wife in a polygamous society. So no, there's nowhere in the Torah where a woman knows a man, and there's nowhere in the Torah where a woman takes a man. And it turns out that when we get later into the days of the Talmud, um, it gets even more um, transactional, right? So the Talmud will say there's three ways a woman is acquired. And one of those ways a woman is acquired is through sexual intercourse. Another way is through the exchange of a ring, and the other way is through a ketubah, right? But sexual intercourse is one of those ways, which I like to say to all of our young people today, go ahead and live together. You're all married, biblically. <laughs> Just save me the caterer's bill. <laughs> when it says that, is that consensual? Uh, is, is marriage ever consen consensual until the modern age? Marriage wasn't saying, consensual until... When they say that, that, that sex was a symbol of marriage, yeah. that was consensual. We have, we have to assume that the Talmud's very good about the laws of, around non-consensual non sexuality. But I do want to say from a feminist perspective that cons, um, marriage as a consensual uh, um, institution is not known until the 20th century, 19th century, I'm sorry, during the Industrial Revolution. But until then, marriage was a financial agreement between two families. In the shtetl even, marriage was just an agreement between two families. So. Romantic love and consensual marriage is really from the Industrial Revolution on. Anything else? Yes, please. The, when you were talking about Inah, and I was looking back at the, to see what the thread is that connects your quotes here, it seems that all of them could be perceived as, I will dehumanize you. Mm, very because nice. Because it's, in each of these cases, you're not a human, you're an animal. You're an animal that the Egyptians uh -huh. treat harshly and in each of the interactions with even Sarah and Hagar. Mm -hmm. that, nice. Um, I, I will not give you the dignity and the respect of another human being. I'm going to treat you like an animal because I think you're an animal. You know, that's a very beautiful insight. That The, the, the common thread between those verses um, is that there is a dehumanizing of the, of the person and a taking away of their human agency. And I, I think that's a very true thread. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm assuming because of the Hebrew that we cannot interpret the story of Dina as she, this is not the first time that she went, quote, to visit the daughters of the land, and she wanted to be with a man. We, in other words, right. she, she, was, she was, in that respect, um, maybe ahead of her time, but, or maybe she was, maybe this, this is what we might call a fling. Um. So the, that question is, can we interpret any of this story as Dina having agency, as Dina going out to see the daughters of the land regularly and wanting to meet a man? And we can read all that into it. That's all a good revisionist reading. The text does not tell us any of that. Text gives us no insight into Dina's motivation, into any of her feelings. As I say, she is silent through the whole story. Um, but what you just did is feminist midrash. So that's a perfect place for me to end. <laughs> a, good, a good example of how we can use feminist midrash to enrich the story and the experience. So I hope you've enjoyed studying a little bit of text with me. It's been really lovely to be with you. Thank you all. <laughs> Wonderful.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.